Dogen, one of the great teachers of the past, once taught, to study the way is to study the self. To study oneself is to forget oneself. To forget oneself is to be awakened by all things. To be awakened by all things is to let body and mind of self and others fall away. Even the traces of awakening come to an end, and this traceless awakening continues endlessly. If you listen to enough Dharma teachings, read enough Dharma books, or practice on this path for a time, there are two words you're going to inevitably encounter. One is anatta, the other is shunyata. Uh, Anatta is translated as non-self, and shunyata is most frequently translated as emptiness. Now, I find that many people have quite an emotional reaction to these words. Some people tell me when these they hear these words, they just kind of stop listening. They sort of tune out. So I'd like to invite you to stay tuned in. (laughs) Some people tell me they feel that this is a kind of complexity or in the teaching that is unfathomable, that is beyond their understanding, that has very little to do with them. Especially, you know, people say, well, you know, I'm, I'm just, uh, you know, on this path, still just struggling to, to find a little calm, and that seems hard enough. Or sometimes I'm just still struggling to know what it means to be with aversion. Some people hear those words with a slight level of resistance. They're heard as being nihilistic a prescription for passivity or a surrender of direction and relationship. Some people tell me they even hear hear these words as a kind of accusation, as a sort of judgment upon themselves when they feel that their reality is one that seems to be very locked within a world of self. Yet the Buddha didn't reserve these teachings for his most experienced students or for a spiritually elite. In fact, this was around these these understandings. This was actually the second discourse that the Buddha gave when he began teaching. So when new students turned up, he would you know, for the first time, he would just launch into this teaching of non-self and emptiness. Why? Because the Buddha very much considered this teaching and understanding of non-self to really be at the heart of a liberated mind. And that there's no better means to bring about the end of despair, the end of sorrow, the end of suffering, than to deeply understand non-self. And rather than presenting anatta or non-self as being some, something terribly complex, he 
he really spoke about non-self and emptiness as a kind of simple reality, just staring us in the face every moment of our day. Now, in reality, this teaching of non-self spans, of course, all Buddhist traditions, but it's not restricted to Buddhist traditions. People in so many traditions speak about their they're touching this world of emptiness. Oliver Sacks, some of you may be familiar with him. He's a neurologist, and he wrote this when he was convalescing from a serious leg injury. He said, after breakfast, I wandered out. It was a particularly glorious September morning. Settled myself on a stone seat with a large view in all directions and filled and lit my pipe. This was a new, or at least almost forgotten, experience. I'd never had the leisure to light a pipe before, or not, it seemed to me, for 14 years at least. Now suddenly I had an immense sense of leisure and unhurriedness, a freedom I had almost forgotten but which now it had returned seemed the most precious thing in life. There was an intense sense of stillness, peacefulness, joy, a pure delight in the now, freed from drive or desire. I was intensely conscious of each leaf, autumn-tinted, on the ground, intensely conscious of the Eden around me. The world was motionless, still, everything concentrated, an intensity of sheer being. Now on this morning, as though on the first morning of creation, I felt like Adam beholding a new world with wonder. I had not known or had forgotten that there could be such beauty, such completeness in every moment. I had no sense at all of moments, the serial, only the perfection and beauty of the timeless now. In the commentaries, Dogen says, emptiness includes the sun, moon, stars, and planets, the great earth, mountains, and rivers, all trees and grasses, bad people and good people, bad things and good things, heaven and hell. They are all in the midst of emptiness. Now, the Buddha presented anatta as both a teaching and as a practice, and ultimately as a way of seeing, as an embodiment of a liberated heart. And as a teaching, the Buddha presented this very simply, saying that no thing can be found inwardly or outwardly in the world that has an independent self-existence. And as a practice, he taught, saying, nothing arises in body, nothing that arises in body or mind should be regarded as mine, as belonging to me, or as who I am. Nothing that arises in the world should be regarded as me, mine, belonging to me. Now the practice, as the Buddha taught it, very much follows on from the investigation of the teaching. When giving instructions in the practice, the Buddha was asked the question, he says, saying, what is the mind liberated through emptiness? And the Buddha answered, Ananda Yogini goes to the forest, goes to the root of a tree, goes to an empty hut, 
and reflects, this is empty of self or what belongs to self. He says, this is the liberation of the heart through emptiness. And the Buddha went on to describe this understanding as the abode, the home of a noble person. Now, I think this practice was, in the Buddha's time, and I think for us too, something very immediate. But this practice and teaching also has a direction. Its direction is certainly not to annihilate the self, not to erase the self, but to dispel the confusion that is the origin of suffering and struggle and torment. It's so important in many ways to remember the simple elegance of what is taught in this teaching, that great experiences may or may not come our way in meditation. We may or may not get very concentrated. This is all very secondary. What is primary in the teaching, and I think primary in our own longings, is the longing to bring about an end of suffering, of torment, of struggle, by understanding its causes. Because this is what opens the door to love, to compassion, to generosity, to kindness. All rests upon this very deep and transforming understanding of non-self or emptiness. Dogen went on to say, you must surely know emptiness is a perfect grass. This emptiness is bound to bloom like hundreds of grasses blooming. Seeing a dazzling variety of the flowers of emptiness, we surmise an infinity of the fruits of emptiness. We observe the bloom and fall of the flowers of emptiness and learn the spring and the autumn of them. I feel that we probably agree and know in our own experience that every single quality of heart that we truly long for and value and see as being ennobling and beautiful, our capacity to reach out and touch another with love and compassion and empathy, that these are the moments, those are the moments actually, when the sense of self and the sense of other is most quiet. When we touch upon peace and stillness and calmness, our capacity to embrace pain with equanimity, these are the qualities and the moments when the whole feeling of an independent, protective, assertive self is most quiet. In a way, those moments of loveliness actually arise from non-self. They arise from emptiness. It's probably also evident to us the moments when we're suffering the most, when we're clinging the most, when we feel most disconnected, most estranged from others, the moments when we feel most gripped by fear or ill will or craving, the most difficult moments in our lives. These are also the moments when the sense of I, the sense of self, and the sense of you or other is most solid, most outstanding, most prominent. 
we could almost say that those moments are, we could almost say that suffering is the bloom of confusion. If we can see for ourselves that the most spacious, the most peaceful, most connected moments in our lives are the moments when we feel least self-preoccupied, least self-absorbed, least self-obsessed, then it's really good to ask ourselves what, what it is that leads to the denial of that spaciousness, what it is that locks us seemingly into these ideologies of me, what locks us into self-preoccupation and absorption, places really often where we really don't want to be. First, I want to take, take a moment to look at why we might struggle so much with this teaching of non-self, never mind its actuality. Because we can be pretty sure that if we struggle with the teaching, we're probably unlikely to practice non-self. <laughs> now, the moment, no, I think there's no doubt the primary reason that we struggle with the concept, never mind the reality of non-self, it's because it seems to be the polar opposite of our felt experience. As embarrassed as we might be to admit it, we do pretty much see ourselves as being the center of the universe. <laughs> the Buddha described this as a kind of optical illusion. <laughs> you know how it is when you actually look at, at, at the sun, that it rises over there and it sets, no, it rises over there and it sets over there? pretty much looks like it's going round us, doesn't it? <laughs> doesn't it look that way? That, that's how it looks. I mean, for a long time, people thought this was so. Now, most of us, I'm, I guess, were agreeing that this is actually not the truth, that it's an optical illusion. But perhaps that's also true about this whole idea of the self. I and mean, when you wake up in the morning, just doesn't it feel as if yourself, myself, is just waiting for us like an old pair of slippers <laughs> beside the bed, just waiting to slip right in, you know? Um, as if we're just, if this, it's just kind of waiting for our bodies and minds to get into gear and to sort of move into my plans, you know, and my obsessions and my projects, my wants, my nightmares, my tasks. Now, as the center of the universe, of course, we, we are prone to take everything pretty personally. <laughs> you know, things happen to me, or I make things happen. These are our two particular standpoints. Things happen to me, or I make things happen. And things belong to me. And of course, we have a very long and detailed story of who I am. And a sense of self, our enduring companion, it seems, at times also our worst nightmare, is pretty evident, creates more or less an ongoing cycle of anxiety and judgment and fear and isolation and disconnection, feelings of unworthiness, feelings of inadequacy. These are all the landscape of myself. 
And in that landscape, identified with it, of course, we can spend the whole of our lives protecting, improving, asserting, concealing, bettering ourselves. It's actually a full-time job. <laughs> it's a full-time job. Now, we could react to this sense of self-absorption with shame or judgment or blame, which is really just another way of heaping selfing upon selfing. It's really just another offshoot of self-absorption. Or we could, as the Buddha suggested, investigate. Let's be curious about this. Let's just look at it a little bit more closely. This idea of self, is it, is it an idea? Is it a reality? Is it a noun or is it a process? Is there truly an independent self? Is this who we are? Now, when, Buddha came, when people came to the Buddha arguing the case for self, he, he didn't answer, you know, there, with the, he didn't ever say there is self or there's no self. Never, never delivered that answer, that there is a self or there is not a self. Instead, he encouraged this investigation, and, and knowing the level of resistance around it, he thought there was a good way to do this. So he began by encouraging this investigation with an external investigation. So the kind of classic example in the time of the Buddha was the investigation of a cart. Now, we don't have any carts in this room. But, you know, he would say, take, unpack the cart. You know, is the wood the cart? Is the shaft the cart? You know, is the seat the cart? You know, what is the cart when you take all of this apart? Now, we don't have a cart, but if you take a chair, for example, you take a chair. Now, clearly the chair exists. You know, the chair exists. Maddie is not sitting on an illusion. <laughs> If she was, she would be sprawled on the floor. But we can take the chair very personally, can't we? I mean, you don't think you take it personally until someone sits on your chair. <laughs> then you really realize how very personally you take, this is my chair, this is mine, this belongs to me. Now, the chair clearly has a conventional reality, but does it have an independent self-existence? When you look a little bit beneath the concept or the appearance of the chair, we actually see it's not so. The chair is actually an ongoing story. No matter its appearance of solidity, if you look underneath the context, the concept and the appearance, well, actually, you see the people who built the chair. You see the wood in the chair. You see the trees that the wood came from. You see the seeds that grew the trees. You see the sun and the rain that made those trees grow. You even might see the person who at some point in human history had this idea it would be really useful to have something to sit on. Somebody even had to have that idea. But what you do see is a stream of conditions 
the beginning of which is untraceable. But all of those conditions need to come together in a particular way for the chair to be. And in time, the chair is going to turn into something else. So when we speak about the emptiness or the non-self of a chair, what we actually speak about is what is revealed when we probe beneath the surface or the appearance of anything. It's not a denial of the chair. It's certainly not to say no chair, just as the Buddha never said no self. It is more true to say this is a non-chair. And when we probe beneath the appearance of things, what can happen is that we can open to the mystery and the depth and the interrelatedness in this fluid and changing life, fluid and changing life, where nothing at all can be pinned down or can be fixed by name or by concept. Now, emptiness, understanding it, teaches us to let go of all fixed ideas that we hold about ourselves, about others, about the world. Because what we see when we fix something in place with a concept, with an idea, in very real way, we cease to see. We actually cease to see what is. In reality, Nothing in this world is fixed, is set, and static apart from our view of it. Apart from our view of it. Woven into perception. And we see this happening countless times in a single day. You know, there's a classic example on retreats. You know, you are bound to find somebody who annoys you. Rather, you are bound to find yourself being annoyed by somebody who's just doing what they're doing. But you notice how when that happens, how that person gets fixed in place by a concept. You're behind the person who took the last of the noodles. (laughs) The next time you see that person, (laughs) do you see them? Or do you see the person who took the last of the noodles? Forever they are sentenced. In your mind, it's a life sentence to be the person who took the last of the noodles. So what the encouragement in this teaching is, is to let these views take their seat in this fluid mysterious change in life, but that seat is also fluid. It's not a center. It's about opening rather than closing. It's about seeing anew rather than seeing through the filters of the past. It's about seeing the world of possibility in a very real way. It's the deepest level of a beginner's mind. Now, Nagarjuna was one of the great great poets of emptiness. And he once said, Buddhas say emptiness is relinquishing opinions. Knowers of emptiness are incurable.
All scientists, all Buddhists, all yoginis who walk this path, do not dispute the reality that nothing is solid, nothing is fixed in this world. Now, strangely, we are reluctant to apply that same investigation that we brought to the chair, to me, to I, to all that belongs to me. As much as we can sense the freedom of of that understanding of living in the light of emptiness, at the same time, it can be deeply unsettling to apply this to ourselves. It can seem almost an intolerable assault or insult to our sense of identity, which is difficult as it can often be, also is kind of safe and it's kind of secure. Now, clearly we have a sense of self. Before awakening, there is a sense of self. After awakening, there is a sense of self made up of body, feelings, experiences, perceptions, emotions, intentions, mind, and of course our name, the standard bearer for me. If I suddenly in the middle of a sitting shouted out in the hall, Jane, now if your name was Jane, (laughs) wouldn't you just feel that surge of self arising? You know, like, what did I do? You know, (laughs) why did you call him my name? Have you ever had the experience where somebody forgets your name when they call you Jane and your name's Julie? How insulted you feel? (laughs) You know, that's not me. It's so interesting we hear these competing voices inwardly longing to be the, for the release from the pain of self-absorption and all its offspring, anxiety and judgment and blame and shame. But we also hear this often desperate voice of self-belief that says, look at me, you know, I'm here, I'm breathing. I remember it was so much the story of my children when they were very, very young. This was one of their favorite phrases. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. We get older, we get a little more subtle. You know, but we still go through the world. You know, look at me. Look at me. Or else we go on the other extreme saying, please don't look at me. Please don't look at me. Same phenomena. Now, when we learn to simply calm our hearts and to look a little more deeply, we begin to be able to use actually the same analytical skills, the same investigations that we apply to the chair to ourselves. And the Buddha describes this about understanding the anatomy of a self. First, he said, investigate the body. We've been doing that over these days, haven't we? Now, if the body was me, belonged to me, who I am, had an independent self-existence, if the body was not entwined with countless other conditions, well, guess what? Basically, we could all have the body we want. (laughs) 
And most of us would choose to have a body that has no pain, that never gets ill, no wrinkles, no aging. We could look the way we want. We could choose the body we want. And we all know, sadly, I hope we agree, this point in our lives, this is simply not an option. <laughs> that our bodies, like all things born of conditions, are subject to conditions. Once we were all just a twinkle in someone's eye. The body's certainly not under our dominion. It doesn't change the way we want it to, and it often changes in the ways that we don't want it to. We could be at peace with this, or we could have a lot of argument with it. Isn't this also true of feelings? We've been contemplating feeling over these days. <coughs> have you noticed you can't really choose the menu? <laughs> you can't choose to have only pleasant feelings. You can't choose not to experience the unpleasant, no matter how heroically we try. We can't choose to inhabit the landscape of only the lovely, the delightful. How about consciousness? How many choices have you felt there? How many, did you invite the thoughts and mental states or the ones you experienced today? Could you get up this morning and decide to have a day of uninterrupted happiness and feel the mind obedient? Did you get up today and decide that you're going to have a day of obsession? <laughs> You've probably noticed how everything in yourself is changing, that nothing is fixed, nothing is static. If self has an independent self-existence and dominion, it's actually not doing a very good job. So where does the idea come from? And it is really only an idea that this is me, this is mine, this is who I am. At what point do we make this fluid, unfolding process into something static, something fixed? into an identity. Well, there's a lot of factors at play in that. Certainly one factor is what the Buddha called ignorance, simply not knowing what's true. Another factor, of course, is clinging and fear, wanting solidity, wanting permanence. Now, intellectually, we can perhaps accept that there is no pilot in the cockpit we are not in control. We cannot decide on everything that happens in our body-mind experience. Intellectually, we can know that. Emotionally, it seems we never get up, give up hope. We valiantly keep trying again and again, struggling with what is, adding to the simple truth of every moment a level of suffering through resistance and craving, through rejection and grasping, wanting, not wanting, liking, disliking, the many, many ways we can torment ourselves as we struggle to deny emptiness, as we struggle to deny non-self. There is suffering. Now, the Buddha described this as being very optional. It can end. Now, Let's take this teaching that nothing has an independent self-existence that we can intellectually accept and look at what it is as a practice. Now, first, in this teaching, and I think this is incredibly important, self is not a noun, it is a verb. 
It is a process, arising and passing. It's almost a reflexive reaction that arises within ourselves in the face or even the intimation of pain or injury or loss or the unknown, but also in the face or in the intimation of pleasure. Food, sights, thoughts that offer the possibility of delight or assurance or safety. These are the moments when we get a felt sense of selfing, a tightening, a kind of energetic surge, a contractedness of heart and mind that creates a tunnel vision. You can feel that surge in the movement towards, in the movement away from. It can be around lunch, it can be around the notice board. And underlying that felt surge is this background symphony. This is me. This is mine. This belongs to me. This is who I am. This deep sense of contractedness through trying to keep, trying to control, trying to get rid of. Now at times in wiser moments we tell ourselves it would be a really good idea to let go. But that suggestion I think is also a delusion. Because that suggestion also posits a centrality of self that has the autonomy and the power to let go of something. As if I cling. This is also a delusion. I don't cling. I don't identify with things. Clinging and identification and selfing are very interwoven processes. It's not that I, there's some separate self. I mean, this would be weird, wouldn't it? Some separate self deciding to cling, deciding to identify. I mean, I'm, I'm quite sure that I have never let go of anything in my entire life. But I'm also pretty sure that I'm not responsible for clinging to anything in my entire life either. I think there's a reframing that needs to happen, that clinging and selfing are same of the part, part of the same fabric of confusion, arising and passing together processes that arise and pass together. Now, I'd like to encourage you to notice that there's also many, many moments of non-selfing in each of our days. I really encourage you to notice those moments rather than thinking of this as some big breakthrough that happens over here. In fact, non-selfing is also a part, can be part, we can get a taste of it in our lives. I mean, notice perhaps moments when you can step outside, truly see the sun shining on the grass, the silhouettes of the trees against the sky, the moon in the sky, and just found a certain stillness in the presence of all things. Not wanting anything, not planning anything, but a simple and a remarkable aliveness. Have you ever found yourself sitting or walking and just kind of forgotten that it's you sitting or you walking? That really the sitting and the walking is just kind of happening all by itself. No goals, no projects, they just fall away with their sitting, this walking. The breath is breathing itself. It's a heart of aliveness. There is peace with all things. There's also a lot of ordinary moments in our day. 
tying shoes, brushing teeth, where there's no clinging, no selfing occurring, no thing being fixated upon, nothing being isolated. Have you ever found yourself faced with a person in deep distress or pain or need and found yourself unhesitatingly reaching out with compassion, where all boundaries, all sense of self and other just soften and the ideas of I and you just kind of fall away. Now those moments, uh, you know, these moments are intimations of freedom because certainly liberation in this tradition really involves uprooting all the roots of ignorance and confusion. But these are intimations of possibility, tastes of freedom. Not always dramatic, the countless quiet moments as we move through our days and our lives when we're not gripped by views, not gripped by aversion, not gripped by craving. We all have plenty of experience in selfing and practicing solidity, but perhaps we can also learn to practice non-selfing, non-clinging, emptiness. Leonard Cohen once wrote, he said, Ring the bells that can still ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Notice the little moments, the quiet moments of non-selfie. Now, emptiness, non-self, these are not states, but they're ways, they're pathways, they're ways of being. In our lives, in our days, opening, closing, opening, closing, We sense this in our bodies, our minds, our hearts, countless times in a single day, faced with sights, with sounds, with events, with people, with thoughts. And what we really begin to see that closing is that mechanism of selfing and clinging, born of seeing substantiality, born of seeing independent self-existence in all things. Opening, we might say, is a response of emptiness to emptiness. No me, no mine, no belonging to me. What is really suggested in this pathway, that this sense of opening, this sense of expansiveness, of of spaciousness, the falling away of I and you, of self and other, this is not something that needs to be left to chance. It is not just a lucky accident. Perhaps we can see the closing and contractedness first, to see it as suffering. It's a process that sets us apart, that isolates us, that estranges us. And perhaps we can begin to sense how that opening is an end to disconnection, an end to suffering. And perhaps we can learn to probe beneath, to question the appearances, to probe beneath the surface the appearance of all things, to probe beneath the surface of our views, our likes, our dislikes, and begin to soften and open in the midst of contractedness. This is the practice of emptiness, not trying to annihilate anything at all, not even myself. Rumi wrote, Being is not what it seems, nor is non-being. The world's existence is not in the world. Before awakening, there is a sense of self. After awakening, too, there's a sense of self. The difference is the view. 
no longer seeing substantiality or independence of existence in anything at all, still getting up in the morning, breathing, moving through our days, but without that wrong view that causes so much suffering, without the view of substantiality or solidity or independence of existence, inwardly and outwardly, then we open to this mysterious, this fluid, this unfolding life in which nothing at all is fixed. The great poet of great poets of emptiness, Nagarjuna Shantideva, really also taught the profound ethical implications of understanding emptiness. That when we are locked into self-view, there's so much room for ill will. When we're locked into the view of self and other, there's so much room for fear, for ill will, for craving, and no longer locked into that closed world of I and you, of us and them. The, The fear the ill will falls away. And it's most, the most natural embodiment of emptiness is, is in empathy and compassion. Shantideva he once wrote, just as these arms and legs are seen as the limbs of a body, why are embodied creatures not seen as the limbs of life? I'd like to close with a, something by Nyosho Kimball. Look inward at your own mind. It seems quite exciting when not examined. <laughs> but when examined, there is nothing to it. Appearing without being, it is nothing but empty. It cannot be identified saying, that's it but it is elusive like mist. Look at whatever may appear in any of the ten directions. No matter how it may appear, the thing in itself, its very nature, is the sky-like nature of mind, beyond the projection and dissolution of thought and concept. Everything has the nature of being empty. When the empty looks at the empty, who is there to look at something empty? Let's have a moment quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.